This is Generation Justice, broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, 89.9 KUNM and KUNM.org. I'm your host, Derek Toledo. And I'm your co-host, Chantal Trujillo. Generation Justice is a multimedia project that trains youth to create media that inspires social change. In 2014, we saw moments of outrage and transformative power. We have experienced what we believe to be a shift in global consciousness. Tonight is part three of our Best of 2014 series, and we're sharing some of the most compelling discussions around institutionalized racism, police violence, and the militarization of police departments. For many of us in our 20s or younger, we've never experienced this level of public unrest, protest, and direct action. Throughout 2014, Generation Justice has made sure to keep our eyes, our ears, and our hearts focused on this movement. We will also share some inspiring music that gave voice to these issues. To begin, here's a powerful song by The Game, and it's called Don't Shoot. You seen the pictures, feel the pain. Scandals, how they murder son. Tired of them killing us. I'm on my way to Ferguson. Talk to Tip, I talk to Diddy. Then my brother's walking with me. Mother's crying, stop the rise. We ain't got a chocolate city. In March 2014, Albuquerque resident James Boyd was brutally killed by local police. The release of the video exposed the militarized treatment of a vulnerable human being, which sparked outrage in New Mexico and around the world. Generation Justice spoke with David Correa about the Albuquerque Police Department's use of excessive force and about the historical analysis of militarization. David Correa is a UNM professor and writer who has specialized in researching systemic violence, including police brutality right here in New Mexico. When asked about his work, here's what he had to say. I I sort of came to this through my academic work. began as an academic study that I didn't really anticipate would have anything to do with police violence when I began it. It's a, it's a history of uh, uh, New Mexico land-grant struggle. It's a story about New Mexico's colonial past. And, you know, I knew going in that when you're talking about New Mexico's colonial history, you're talking about violence. But what I didn't realize was that sort of contemporary and more recent expressions of that struggle, particularly in northern New Mexico, often find their form in struggles with police. And so one of the chapters I have focuses specifically on struggles around police brutality in San Miguel County and in Rio Reba County. In those instances, I think some really, uh, really sophisticated, really well-organized activists recognize police violence as a political fact of life. And so they, they organized through the political arena. And, and so La Raza Unida, as a sort of Chicano third party, emerges in New Mexico, particularly in San Miguel County, really in many counties of the state. But in San Miguel and Rio Reba, it, they organized themselves around protecting particularly Chicano youth from police who were really um, exploiting them, uh, brutalizing them. Um, in fact, uh, La Unida Party in San Miguel County had what they called a violence committee. And the violence committee's job was to surveil the police to protect young people in that, in that community. And this is in the 70s, by the way. This is not so long ago. And often, really, what would happen, the sheriff's posse, right, would be these sort of uh, allies to the police there was a lot of sort of violent conflicts between people. And this was also true in Rio Riba County. 
pretty, I think, courageous activists like Ike de Vargas, Pedro Archuleta, if any of our listeners have ever heard of them, recognized police violence as part of a way to um, reinforce a, a political institution that benefited the few at the expense of the many. And the few were the rich and the many were the poor. Mm-hmm. It was really no longer to me an academic exercise when I'm seeing people being gunned down in the streets of Albuquerque by police. The thing I recognized coming into this, the research I did on Albuquerque police violence, is that this is nothing new. What's important to remember is that police brutality is nothing new. However, as we have seen this past year, the awareness of this systemic problem is spreading. Thank you to David Correa for helping us to make these historical connections. And thank you to Generation Justice Director Roberto Rayel and Generation Justice Member Omar Torres for guiding this discussion. To further emphasize the issue of APT police brutality, we will hear from Kenneth Guy Alice II, whose son, Kenneth III, was killed by APD. Kenneth successfully sued the city of Albuquerque and APD for $10.3 million. When we asked him to tell us about his son, this is what he had to share. I guess I could start with, uh, with 9-11 and when they flew the planes into our buildings. Uh, my son got very upset about that and uh, decided to put his welding career on hold and, and join the military and go... Uh, fight for his country and fight for uh, freedom and liberty and uh, went over there and and uh, was in five different IED explosions and the fifth one blew his battle buddy up all over him. So he came back from Iraq with uh, severe post-traumatic stress disorder and was in the VA uh, program and uh, got kicked out of that program and three days later he was gunned down by Albuquerque police uh, at the corner of Eubank and Constitution here in town. And uh, that uh, set me on, on, on my path to, to finding out uh, exactly why someone with uh, post-traumatic stress was gunned down and not helped. And here we are today with, uh, you know, the, the police violence and the, and the, uh, and the history of uh, our police being militarized. Um, there's been, uh, you know, history's repeating itself. We've been through this before in the city. Um, Back, uh, they, they, they had the Walker Luna report where it, uh, you know, explained what was going on, what was wrong with our, our police department. And, and uh, then we had a, a PERF report when the, when the mayor took over in, in 2010. They had, a, a, they had a also a transition report. So there's been reports and reports after reports about this. And uh, here we are repeating ourselves. I mean, at some point in time, we really need to, you know, do an effective uh, a change here. We actually need... Um, you know, community-based policing, we actually need civilian oversight of the police department. Uh, it's obvious that the police cannot police themselves. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just a sad state that, uh, that we're in with our, with our law enforcement. Uh, I mean, that James Void video was uh, very, very disturbing. And, and what's more disturbing is that I know that there's, you know, a couple of dozen other videos out there that are just like that, that they refuse to release. We have these uh, Freedom of Information Act, and we, and we can do these uh, um, IPRAs and, and request these videos, and they're not releasing them. They will not. They will rather pay a lawsuit than release the videos of these uh, young men and getting killed on the streets of, the, of our city. Kenneth Alice, I am so sorry for your loss, and I appreciate you sharing with us. Unfortunately, Kenneth's story is just one out of countless cases of innocent people being brutally attacked and killed by police officers. Only 750 out of 18,000 
or 4% of law enforcement agencies report their homicide figures. Because of this, we don't know how many people are shot and killed by police every year, but we do know that a huge percentage of those deaths are people of color. Thank you, Kenneth, for sharing your story with us and for the work that you do to hold police accountable. In July, Albuquerque activists organized the March to End Police Brutality. We spoke with community members about why they were in the streets taking direct action. Here's what they told us. My name is Sandro Toller and I'm here to represent my son Alper Redwine. He was shot by APD on March 25th and um, I'm here to support him and James Boyd and every other victim that was taken by the police department. My name is Clavo Martinez. I'm here with the El Chuco Autonomous Brown Berets from El Paso, Texas. We're here today to support our brothers and sisters in Albuquerque to fight the same fight that is going on in communities all over the nation. My name is Cristala Musato Allen, and what I did was I... I wanted to make a prayer to try and heal some of those wounds uh, so that we can move forward in a way that creates some solutions and changes the situation. I'm State Senator Linda Lopez, representing uh, the South Valley and Southwest Mesa here in Bernalillo County. And I'm here today to support the organizers and our people. My name is Sam Gardapi. I'm with uh, the American Indian Movement. I'm here today to protest the Illegal shootings by the Albuquerque Police Department. My son was a very good son. He helped everybody. He he was a tattoo artist and a good father to his son. And I guess they're just profiling him because of his tattoos and nationality. And you know, who can say? what's in their minds. Uh, We all talk about mental health needs in the community and people that are living on the street, but a police officer that will kill a man from 100 yards away holding a knife and then booyah is also not healed. He also has mental health issues. The kill or be killed, kill before they kill me mentality has to go away. We need peace officers. I call it a lack of respect, not from all of our police officers, but from there's a group. So we need to challenge the officials in our communities and make sure that they know that we're waking up one by one. And if we wake up one person, I'm going to wake up ten. I grew up here, I'm originally a Oklahoma native, but I grew up here and uh, the cops were always bad for us natives when we were young. You know, if you had long hair and you were a native, you were a target. You know, uh, I personally believe that all of us are in in this together, Chicanos, natives, blacks, you know, everybody. We've all been hassled by the police at least one time or another. I support community policing, always have, and we've gotten away from that of where we have the community involved within our police and with our police departments. That's so important because that's the voice of us as the people.
Plus, I mean, we need to be able to mobilize. I mean, uh, it doesn't, it's hard to do if we're all just in our houses. So we need to challenge the officials in our communities and make sure that they know that we're waking up one by one. And if we wake up one person, I'm going to wake up 10. I just hope things change. We need a lot of change in that department. And anywhere in this nation, because this is an epidemic. This is not just happening in Borque. So if you have a name of someone that has been killed by police brutality, we invite you to write their name. Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see An injustice to one is an injustice to all. That's right, Chantel. It makes me feel good that the community can stand together in solidarity against these oppressive forces. Thank you, Sandra Otole, Clavo Martinez, Cristala Musado-Ellen, Sam Gardapi, and State Senator Linda Lopez for showing us the importance of collective direct action. Generation Justice didn't only cover this movement on air. Throughout the year, we also expressed our opinions in our blogs. For example, GJ fellow Christina Rodriguez shared her thoughts on APD police violence in her blog titled, The War Is Now. To read it, visit generationjustice.org. Now, here's a song titled PTTP, which stands for Power to the People by Vibe. Earlier this year in February, Sabrina Fulton was a keynote speaker at UNM's Black History Month kickoff brunch. Sabrina Fulton is the mother of Trayvon Martin, who was killed by Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman in 2012. She gave a heartfelt speech about how we need to create positive change in our world. This is what she taught us. Let me start off by saying it's an honor to be here. This is my first time here in New Mexico and I never would have thought before my tragedy, before my journey, that I would be traveling the world, that I would meet so many positive people, and that I would be doing work to help others. Let me start off by telling you that my family was the most average family that you can meet. I came from an average background. I attended what I call an average church with an average car, an average job, average friends. And the reason why I say that is because I want people to know that I did not sign up for this. I want people to know that this can happen to even an average person. That today, it was my son. T 
tomorrow it may be someone else's son. So I made up in my mind that although I was wounded and I was hurt, I couldn't let that keep me down. I needed to turn my pain into a purpose. The absolutely worst thing was not sitting in the courtroom listening to what happened to my child. That wasn't the worst thing. The absolute worst thing was when I had to wake up that Saturday morning and attend the funeral of my 17-year-old son. That was my wake-up call. That was the time that I said, I'm either part of the problem a part of the solution. And I refuse to be a part of the problem. And that's why it's so important for me to go around the world and talk to people about my tragic story and how we can make this United States a better place. Sometimes when I speak, it makes people uncomfortable. It should make people uncomfortable. But it should make you uncomfortable to the point that you say, I have to do something about this. I have to get involved. Because what I believe is I'm fighting for both my boys. I have one on earth and one in heaven. And although I lost my son on, on earth, I didn't lose my fight. I have to continue to fight. I have to keep to continue to push on, even though it hurts. It hurts something terrible. It's not the natural order of things to bury our kids. So when we have to bury our kids, it hurts to the core of who we are as a mom. And that's why I speak from the heart. I don't speak with notes and I don't have a whole bunch of things that I'm written in my hand and I'm speaking to you. I don't have a monitor. I'm speaking to you from my heart. Let me go back to my wake-up call. My wake-up call was that Saturday morning when I had to get dressed and I had to attend my son's funeral. Just see him for one final time here on earth. And he was dressed in all white as if he was an angel. And then I thought about it and I said, well, maybe he looks like he's going to the prom. But I won't be able to see him going to his prom because he didn't make it to 12th grade. I won't get a chance to see him graduate from high school. I want to get a chance to see him go off to college and get married and have kids. I won't get that opportunity. So that's why it's so important that we fight for our children. Even if it's not our children, we still have to get involved. But I want to take just a moment to talk to the college students, the high school students, elementary students, just students, period. But for the college students, you all are in a place that a lot of people would like to be. It's up to you to make a difference. And don't let anyone tell you that you cannot make a difference because you certainly can. It takes one person at a time. And although I'm here to speak in reference to black history, anybody can create black history. Anybody can make a difference in America for the benefit of others will benefit black history. So don't think you have to be a specific color to be effective 
for black history, we need to move in a positive direction. And I stand before you today only by the grace of God who helps stand me up and keep me moving forward each time I want to give up and each time I want to just stay home and cry. Thank you all. Thank you, Sabrina Fulton, for teaching us that we should never adjust ourselves to injustice. We are inspired by your strength, your perseverance, and your willingness to continue the fight against police brutality and institutionalized racism. The killing of young Trayvon Martin awakened communities of color about how vulnerable the children are. In response, three activists developed the hashtag Black Lives Matter as a way to combat iniquities of structural racism embedded within police departments. During the first week of December, Generation Justice of UNM Vice President Nicole Beatty spoke with Patrice Cullors, an activist, organizer, and one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Here is Nicole Beatty with Patrice Cullors. Patrice, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, I am a native and Heleno in Southern California. I am born and raised in the, uh, the San Fernando Valley in the Van Nuys and Canoga Park areas. And I am currently the executive director of Dignity and Power Now, a grassroots organization fighting for the power and dignity of incarcerated people, their families, and communities. And I'm also the co-founder of uh, Black Lives Matter, the hashtag political project and network. Can you um, go into describing what hashtag Black Lives Matter is? Yes. Um, Last year, after George Zimmerman was acquitted of Trayvon Martin's murder, Myself and Alicia Garza developed the hashtag Black Lives Matter out of a moment of grief, uh, out of a moment of the need to affirm black people and that our lives have value. And then Opal Tometi um, joined the team and really helped build the social media infrastructure of Black Lives Matter. So I know that hashtag Black Lives Matter campaign has specific goals or demands, um, at least from what I've read. Um, Can you speak more on these demands? When we first developed the hashtag, we weren't developing it to only talk about law enforcement violence. um, And uh, we weren't only trying to talk about uh, white male police officers murdering black cis uh, boys and men. We're talking about all black people, so I think that's really important. And in this moment in history, there is a focus right now on really pushing back against law enforcement violence. And so our set of demands are specifically around law enforcement violence, but it doesn't actually run the gamut of how we think about all black lives. And so the demands, and I'm going to focus on um, sort of the gist of the demands, but one of the, the main demands is how do we defund law enforcement and put more money into social services. And so we have these law enforcement budgets that are in the millions um, and some in the billions across the country, yet you can go to a, a community and they don't, and folks don't have access to food. Folks are, there's a significant amount of homelessness, right? right. Black folks Black folks have the highest rates of homelessness, right. have the highest uh, rates of being murdered by cops. Um, black trans women uh, have the highest rates of murders, right, by mm. uh, vigilantes. So why aren't we having the conversation around what creates structural violence and how our demands can actually take money out of law enforcement funding and put money back into the communities that really need it, communities that are in poverty, black communities in particular. What did you all hope to accomplish when you founded slash launched um, hashtag Black Lives Matter? 
I wasn't trying to launch the hashtag to start a political movement. Not originally. I mean, the hashtag was really for self-preservation. It was a hashtag about uh, resilience. Uh, it was a hashtag to make a declaration. Um, and uh, as it started to grow and as it started to develop and as it started to go viral, it was really clear that Alicia, myself, and Opal had created something for black people across the country, but I'll also argue across the world, and their allies could utilize as a rallying call to say that um, our, our lives matter, that black lives matter, and we are going to make sure you know that, and we are going to fight like our lives matter. It breaks my heart that every 28 minutes, a black person is killed by police or vigilantes. This fact hits home with young people in New Mexico. GJ member Maya Quinones has written a blog entitled, I'm Scared. Visit generationjustice.org to read her compelling thoughts. This is why Black Lives Matter is so important. Black Lives Matter has shown us that power exists within the intersection of social media and social movements. Hashtag Black Lives Matter has gained support all around the world. This is what solidarity looks like. Thank you, Patrice Colors, for the work that you do and in helping spread this movement further. And thank you to Nicole Beatty for conducting this interview. Also, Generation Justice member Patrick Goff, who currently attends Washington University in St. Louis and has participated in actions in Ferguson, shared his experience in a blog called Privilege and Power, Ferguson and Being an Ally. Visit generationjustice.org to read it. Now, here's a song titled Be Free by J. Cole. He wrote it as a tribute to Michael Brown and to every young black man murdered in America. He prays that one day the world will be filled with peace and rid of injustice. Stay tuned. Are we all alone? Fighting on our own. Please give me a chance. I don't want to dance. Something's got me down. I will stand my ground. Don't just stand around. Don't just stand around. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. Welcome back to our special Best of 2014 edition of Generation Justice. Tonight, we bring you some of the most compelling conversations that explore the intersection of institutionalized racism, police brutality, and the militarization of police forces. We have shared with you some of the events nationally that have impacted us, but we also focused on the impact of militarization globally. In the summer of 2014, we witnessed one of the worst attacks on Gaza at the hands of Israeli Defense Forces. These attacks left thousands of innocent civilians dead. As we had our eyes and hearts on Gaza, we understood more deeply the global extent of the militarization of police departments. In August, Generation Justice intern Jordan Unverzot spoke with Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, who is an international activist and has been raising her voice against the militarization of police departments and their intersection with the powerful Israeli Defense Forces. Here is Jordan Unverzot with Rabbi Lynn. My name is Lynn Gottlieb, and I've been serving as a rabbi for 41 years. I'm one of the first women to become a rabbi in Jewish history, and I've also had been very involved in social justice issues throughout the years. 
Would you briefly describe your journey to becoming involved in social justice as a political activist? It actually started pretty early, being one of the, fir- the first generation born after the Holocaust. During the civil rights period, the idea that never again meant never again for anyone was the lesson that the reform rabbis of my youth taught me. They taught me that because the world stood idly by Jewish genocide, we were accountable not to stand idly by oppression of other people. So to take a step back and look at the broad spectrum, um, can you please help me to understand the militarization of police departments? Yes. Um, we should understand that if we send tens of thousands of soldiers overseas to invade and occupy Iraq, to invade and occupy Iran, and to ship weapons to our allies, and to learn surveillance, crowd control, and uh, repression techniques from governments like Israel, who claims that it's, it uses battle-tested techniques, which of course means uh, on uh, Palestinians, why wouldn't we expect those people, many people who are coming back and then coming into the police agencies in the United States, not to use the same techniques? And so what you see is the occupation military mentality that's used overseas is brought back to the streets of the United States. What does militarization mean exactly? It means that instead of protecting people and serving people and helping people redress their needs, which are not being met, the police provoke and then respond to protests that arise from their provocation with lethal force. And so they drive in in tanks, they use assault weapons, they use all kinds of tear gas, and they use crowd control techniques that have been developed on the battlefield. So where, where people have no trouble killing non-Americans. If you see the terrorist threat everywhere and then you come home and that is transferred onto a civilian population, you get the same behavior as is being practiced with uh, Iraqis, Afghanis, and other people also practiced on or deployed on African Americans and Latinos and so forth. It's the same companies that provide the equipment, the same kind of training, the same approach. There's no difference of approach. So we are, in fact, an occupied nation. When you have a police force that is arresting journalists, a police force that is shooting to kill, a police force that is using tear gas and tasers to kill, firing rubber bullets. You know, there are other methods of crowd control. It's just the escalation, the level of escalation is the militarized 
when you have a SWAT team coming in because a, a person who ha is challenged mentally is having an episode and they kill that person like they did uh, the other day in St. Louis, this is the militarization of police. Mm -hmm. And they have an, an enormous mass incarceration system to back them up. So at the same time, we're losing our freedom of the press. The Obama administration has arrested and silenced more journalists than any other administration combined. So you have the law, and we know that journalists in Ferguson were shot with rubber bullets and tear gassed and arrested for simply sitting in a McDonald's and taking stories. When you have that kind of activity happening across the board, you are in an occupied country. Why is this level of military force being used on civilians? Why is this necessary? It's not necessary. But, you know, cultures develop and they evolve. And unless citizens rise up right now and take direct action and begin training, the, the serious kind of training that we need, which you can see the Ferguson community is doing. On the other hand, you have the federal government promoting Urban Shield, which is a local, national, and federal, and international event to combat terrorism, in which the idea is to train all 700,000 police enforcement officials in the craft of uh, responding to terrorism. When you have that level of training across the board, you are going to get a very bad outcome. For you, Rabbi Lynn, what is the purpose of this Urban Shield strategy to train in Israel and bring this force back to the U.S.? There are people who are profiting like bandits from militarization. They see an opportunity to sell billions of dollars worth of equipment, and, and therefore they need to create enemies. They need to create conditions which justify the selling of this equipment. Safariland is making $1.6 billion profit. They make tear gas, and they are sponsors of Ribbon Shield. I want to take this back a little bit to Albuquerque and ask for your analysis on the militarized presence in Albuquerque's police department. For example, the officers who shot James Boyd used flashbang devices and concussion grenades. Well, this is another example of the culture of police that is a national phenomenon, not just a phenomenon in Albuquerque, but a national phenomenon where police are being trained in these methods. And this is what we have to interrupt. We have to interrupt the entire police culture in the United States. So Albuquerque, of course, is also next to military base, and we have to demand different kind of training for the police. We have to demand an end of militarization of the police. And we have to link up local communities that are doing that and form and strengthen our national networks. So I would say the, the task in Albuquerque is no different than the task in Ferguson or New York City or Philadelphia or Chicago, Detroit, Seattle, wherever there are communities vulnerable to police violence, we have the same issues. As an institution that was built to serve and protect, 
It's terrifying that police are trained to use such overwhelming, extreme measures against innocent civilians. Chantal, I know you wrote a thoughtful blog expressing your analysis of the process of militarization. To read her blog entitled Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Intersections of Military and Police, visit generationjustice.org. The issue of police militarization is something that isn't being brought to the conversation nearly enough. If we're going to address the issue of police brutality, we also have to address this very important aspect that is driving it. Thank you, Rabbi Lane Gottlieb, for teaching us that the militarization of police is an issue that must be addressed around the world, and to Jordan Unverzat for leading this conversation. Now, here's a powerful song titled Seven Billion by Silent Sea. How many of us living or just existing? Power to the peace. This is not a black thing. This is not a white thing. This here is a world thing. Power to the peace. This is not a brown thing. This is not a red thing. This here is a world thing. Seven billion strong. Seven billion strong. Seven billion strong. As we continue to look at the issue of militarization, not only has the United States experienced a shift in consciousness, but Mexico has as well. The catalyst for this shift was the disappearance of the 43 young students from Mayotzinapa. In November, Generation Justice dedicated an entire show to honor the 43 students. In order to provide us with the context of Ayotzinapa, Generation Justice fellow Christina Rodriguez spoke with international journalist Kent Patterson. Kent is the editor of Frontera Norte Sur, a project of the Center for Latin American and Border Studies at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. I'm here with Kent Patterson. What has been causing this escalating violence in Guerrero? For centuries, Guerrero has been contested between people what we call caciques, or rural political and economic bosses, and the small farmers. Um, And that's led to this whole history of conflict, which has been punctuated by massacres like Aguas Blancas. There There were some real bad ones back in the 1960s, which triggered a guerrilla war in the late 60s and 1970s. There was the massacre of the coconut, small coconut farmers in the middle of Acapulco in 1967, when Acapulco was at its peak as an international tourist resort. Nobody knows exactly how many farmers were slaughtered in the middle of Acapulco, but there were, there were probably dozens. In 1960, the Mexican army um, massacred uh, at least a dozen people. I think the casualties were, were even higher than that. Again, the casualties get lost, right, because of you know, lack of accurate reporting or lack of adequate medical services, but at least a dozen people were killed in the state capital of Chilpancingo when students went out on the streets to demonstrate for university autonomy and political democracy. The army intervened, killed people. In Iguala, the same place where the Ayotzinapa students were disappeared in September, there was another massacre in 1962. Then there were two famous massacres in 1967, uh, the Acapulco, and then there was one in Atoyac de Alvarez, uh, the town up the coast from Acapulco, where people were demonstrating um, to remove the director of a school who was accused of being particularly tyrannical. The state police opened fire on that demonstration, killed five people, and the survivor 
who organized it was named Lucio Cavañas, who's very important in the history of Guerrero. In fact, Lucio Cavañas was a graduate of Ayotzinapa, and the Mexican government tried to kill him at this demonstration at Atoyac. He survived it, fled to the mountains, and organized a guerrilla army that fought the Mexican army until he was killed in 1974. Another real famous Ayotzinapa graduate was Genaro Vasquez Rojas, who was a political leader in Guerrero, an opposition leader, who also was repressed, jailed. Some of his supporters freed him. They sprung him from jail, and he organized another guerrilla army. So we see this pattern, this dynamic of repression, resistance, repression, resistance. One important thing to point out is the dirty war that happened after the Atoyac massacre and the, the rise of Lucio Cavañas' guerrilla movement. The Mexican army went into Guerrero to crush this rebellion. They instituted collective punishment of rural communities that were accused of collaborating with Lucio Cavañas' guerrillas. They forcibly disappeared hundreds of people whose whereabouts to this day are still not known. Now, an interesting thing is that Right around the time of the Ayotzinapa disappearance, a very important report was released to investigate the dirty war. It was a, the official Guerrero State Truth Commission. And the people who did the investigation had very little resources, but they managed to pull together an amazing report which names the responsible parties for disappearing people. Um, they have this all documented, and it goes right up the chain of command to the president of Mexico. And this report was released on October 15th, almost three weeks after the Ayotzinapa students disappeared. And it's received no attention, essentially, because of the upheaval that's going on now with the latest atrocity. But this report shows the history of repression and the trajectory of how the dirty war was conducted, who was victimized, who was disappeared, who was responsible for that and how that figures into the current repression of today. What stood out the most from what Kent had to say was the list of people responsible for the disappearances goes all the way up to the Mexican president. It makes me feel like the people can't even depend on their own president to keep them safe. Thank you, Kent Patterson, for the incredible work that you do and for teaching us about the brutal history that has led up to what Mexico is now experiencing. Also, thank you, Cristina Rodriguez, for leading this conversation. Thousands of people around Mexico have taken direct action to demand justice and reform. To better understand these actions, we will hear from Mexican student and activist Gio Acosta. Gio is a member of Ayotzinapa Sin Fronteras and does organizing work in both Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. He spoke with my co-host, Chantal Trujillo. Gio Acosta, I am delighted to be speaking with you. Let's talk a little bit about the actions and organizing that you specifically have been a part of in both Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. How have people there responded to Ayotzinapa and to the administration? There's outrage in, in Juarez. And as a matter of fact, normalistas from the Isidro Burgos uh, Normal School in Ayotzinapa came all the way down to Juarez, all the way up, I'm sorry, <laughs> to Juarez to share with us their experiences. So there's a lot of support in Juarez for Ayotzinapa. And as far as, as my involvement, as I mentioned, back in 2012, I, I joined the student movements, Yo Soy Siendo Trendedos, 
and through several activities of activism, which involved basically standing on the streets and with messages just telling people to wake up about the things that are happening in the country, we then moved on to the old fight against feminicide in, in the city, in Ciudad Juarez. Feminicide, as many know, has been described as, as a systematic killing of women that was very notorious uh, starting in the 1990s in Ciudad Juarez. And from then on, I, I've been continuing organizing myself with students in Juarez, also in El Paso, but mostly in Juarez. And another fight that is common in, in Juarez is that against militarization. And I believe that the incident in Ayotzinapa, in which it is presumed that also military was involved. So, Gio, I guess I'm curious about why Ayotzinapa is important to you. Thank you for asking that, by the way. Um, Ayotzinapa is, I grew up in Prajeris Guerrero, which is a, a rural town in northern Chihuahua that was very vulnerated after the, the initial drug war in Mexico, meaning that many people were killed and others were disappeared, including my stepfather. My stepfather, unfortunately, um, was one of those victims. She was decapitated. So I, I personally have this connection with the events that are happening in Ayutzinapa, in, in Iguala, in Guerrero, in all this Michoacán, Tamaulipas, Veracruz. So overall, that's, that's my whole connection with Ayotzinapa personally. Well, I just want to thank you for sharing that with me. I can see how that really can encourage somebody to become an activist. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, not a problem. I'm not afraid of sharing it. <laughs> uh, I believe a lot of people in Mexico are eager for justice. And if we just keep it to ourselves, this justice is never gonna is never gonna become a reality. I think that the perspective that you have is really incredible. As an activist with a perspective from both sides of the border, what is your message that you want the people here in the United States to know? I want people from the U.S. to realize the big trouble that we're in in Mexico as people, as human beings. And we have the presence of a despotic government that is not listening to the demands of people. It is killing us. And just as a reminder, we, as two different countries, have a lot of connections with one another. Thank you for that. Also, right now, there are 43 families, as well as countless others that are suffering through this pain. What is your message to them? My message to them is that no están solos, they're not alone. Even though we seem distant from one another in geographically speaking, we're very connected by, by what is happening to many, many people in Mexico. So my, my message to the parents of Ayotzinapa is they continue the fight that uh, I hope they don't, they don't get tired of, of demanding justice, as many people in Mexico have, have done it. Many people have just decided to turn away, but um, I hope they continue the fight. It's important for people like Gio to keep fighting and encouraging others to fight for justice. He has such a personal connection to the movement. It's easy to feel the message he's spreading. Gio, from my heart to yours, we are one people. This is one movement, and we will continue to fight injustice. 
Thank you, Gio Acosta, for the incredible work that you do. All of us here at Generation Justice stand in solidarity with you. And thank you, Chantel Trujillo, for that interview. Generation Justice fellow Cristina Rodriguez produced our Ayotzinapa show, and she shared her experience in her blog called Upheld in Love. Visit generationjustice.org to read it. Now here's a song that Gio requested. The song is called Me Gustan Los Estudiantes by Mercedes Sosa. Los estudiantes que marchan sobre la ruina Con las banderas en alto a toda la estudiantina Son químicos y doctores, cirujanos y dentistas Caramba y samba la cosa, vivan los especialistas We have reached the end of our Best of 2014 show this evening. Thank you all for joining us on this journey. We have shared with you some of the most compelling conversations that explore the intersection of institutionalized racism, police brutality, and the militarization of police forces. Since the airing of these conversations, we know that more incidents have occurred, and we will continue to bring you more voices of resistance and hope. Thank you everyone who spoke during this production, and thank you Chantal Trujillo for producing and editing tonight's show. Tonight's engineer is Kamaria Umi. Production assistance came from George Luna Pena, Melissa Harris, and Roberta Rael. Much appreciation to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past shows, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Also, our podcasts are now available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm your host, Chantal Trujillo. And I'm your co-host, Derek Toledo. We'll end the show with one more song, then following us on KUNM is Spoken Word. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Until then, stay classy, folks. <laughs>